Well, we are in this um, series in the book of Mark. So if you would take out your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9, and I'm going to read in verses 42 through 50. It's important to note that this long passage that began with um, Holly's reading earlier in verse uh, 30 is really one long section. Our English Bibles often divide them up, but those divisions are not originally in the Bible. And one thing that's important, I just want you to see this, is that we begin, in in a way, this section with the disciples arguing in verse 34, and then at the very end, Jesus calls them to be at peace with one another in verse 50. And I say that just to point out that even though this seems like it's disparate sections, it's actually one point that Mark is trying to make uh, to us. So maybe we can get that as we ask the Spirit to, to show us. But before we do so, let me, let me read this text. This is God's Word. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It will be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The grass withers and the flowers, they fall. But God's word, it endures forever. Let me pray for us. And God, as we look at this passage Help us to see not only what it means, but what it means for us. And more than seeing the meaning of the passage, Lord, we need to see Jesus. The author of it and the one to whom the word always points. So show us Jesus. It's for Christ's sake that I pray. Amen. Well, Jim Collins best-selling book, From Good to Great, came out in 2001. And it was an instant bestseller. The book is about what makes a, what differentiates uh, good companies from great ones, those which um, rise but then don't have the staying power to those which rise and then have the staying power. And what's, I think, fascinating about the book is the audience for it was much larger than a business audience. Uh, Much, much larger than a typical kind of audience for a business book, which it was a business book. I think there's a simple reason for that. 
the book tapped into this deep desire, which is when, in, within all of us, really. And that is, we are, deep down, I think, we are compelled, allured, by this idea of greatness. We all believe, in some way or another, that we were made to be great. I mean, think about it. No one sets off in their career and says, I want a good career. We want a great career. No one walks down the aisle and says, I hope this is a good marriage. We want a great marriage. But we want greatness. No, nobody says, I, I would just want to be a good father. We want, a great, we want to be great fathers and great mothers. We want to be great. We long for this kind of greatness. And, uh, and it's this quest it's this quest that these disciples are on in verse 34. See, they're arguing with one another about who is the greatest. Before Muhammad Ali, the disciples were claiming to be the greatest. I am the greatest. After 2013, when LeBron James had just won two championships with the Miami Heat, he was asked again, what do you most want out of your professional basketball career? And his song has not changed and had not changed at that point. He said, I want to be the greatest of all time, and that's my motivation. It's that simple. It's not that simple. Now, most of us, mere mortals, do not believe that we can be the greatest at all time at anything, right? And so we don't think that we can relate to that. And yet, I think we still have the same ambition. What we do is we just, we just scale it. We scale it down. I'm going to be the greatest in my family. I'm going to be the greatest in my office. I'm going to be the greatest at my school. I'm going to be the greatest amongst my colleagues. I'm going to be the best salesman, right? We just scale it down to make it more bite-sized. And even those of us who have given up this quest, the reality is, is that we were all on it at some point because to give it up, you have to have been on it, right? So here's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the problem of greatness. We're going to look at Jesus' redefinition of greatness. And we're going to look at the signs of true greatness in this text. First, the problem with greatness. Greatness has some problems. The Oxford English Dictionary says that to be great is to be considerably above average in extent, amount, or intensity. In other words, greatness is a, always a matter of comparison. It's to be above average. It's to stand out amongst the rest. It's to be better than others. And so, those who are seeking greatness are always comparing themselves because you have to compare yourself to others. In other words, greatness is born out of this intensely competitive spirit. That's why the disciples are arguing with one another. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Now, competition, of course, is not all bad. Okay. Uh, but there are two types of competition. There's the competition that says, I'm going to set a goal and I want to meet that goal. I want to do better. That's one type of competition. That's the competitive spirit that's, well, 
that competitive spirit is rare. The, the other com kind of competitive spirit, the one that you find in me, is uh, on the basketball court, is the competitive spirit that says, I'm not really concerned with being, you know, better or setting goals. The only thing I'm concerned with is beating you, right? It doesn't matter how well I played. If I played great and, did a per and had a PR and did a personal best or whatever, if I lost to you, then I'm upset. And at the same time, if I, if I, um, if I beat you and I perform poorly, oh, I'm going home happy, right? Because what matters in that kind of competition is not how good you do or not setting the goals. It's just being better than others. And the reality is, is that in all our insecurities, we, we desire affirmation. And because of those insecurities, we don't just want to know, we just don't want, we don't just want to be affirmed. We want to know that we're better than others. That's why the, the quest to be great often slides into the quest to be the greatest, better than. But this, of course, leads to many of life's problems, like conflicts. That's what the disciples are experiencing, conflicts with others. Uh, they're walking along the way. They're going to Capernaum. They get into this house, and when they get there, Jesus asked them, verse 33, what were you discussing on the way? And notice verse 34, but they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. It, this desire to be the greatest amongst the disciples caused a conflict. A conflict that was so intense that when Jesus asked them about it, they couldn't even talk about the subject. Did you notice that? They kept silent. There's an intensity, a shame to this competition. And it's not just, it, this is, by the way, is why the Miami Heat didn't last. This is why you can't have multiple superstars on a team. But it's not just in sports and things like that. It's, uh, it's in the one-upmanship in conversations of everyday life that we have. It's when we compare each other looking up and down one another at the schoolyard, at drop-off and pick-up. It's when we look around the office and say, you know, they have this, but this happened to them, and this happened to them, and aren't they lucky? And I have this because I worked really hard. It's this competition that leads to conflicts, that leads to the avoiding of others, especially if they are better than us and we feel that because we can't enter into it and we can't praise and love and be happy for and these conflicts, they, they kill our personal relationships, like they're doing with the disciples. But it's not just conflicts with others that this quest for greatness turns out to have. It, it also causes this, this envy. Did you notice what happens next? Mark tells a story about how um, they're walking along, and then John pipes up. John doesn't talk much in Mark, and he's probably young and kind of brash because he lived the longest, so most people think that he's one of the youngest. And so he, he just kind of pipes up and says, Hey, teacher, in verse 38, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. 
Now, John thinks at this point that Jesus is going to say, well done, good job. We want to stuff out the competition. Anybody who is doing anything that's not with us, we're not for, right? But Jesus doesn't. Jesus rebukes him. Verse 39, do not stop him. Now you have to understand what has just happened before. What did we see last week? Jesus comes down the Mount of Transfiguration. He enters into this situation where the disciples are in the midst of this argument. And the reason they're in the midst of this argument is because they couldn't cast out a demon. And here they find some other people who are able to cast out demons. That means they're able to do the very thing, these other people, that the disciples weren't able to do. And you know what that makes them feel? Insecure. Envious. And so they say, stop doing that. Don't do that. Uh, You're not with us. You're not following Jesus in the same way we are. You're not part of the 12. So don't do that. I was, uh, I was looking on social media and someone posted this quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It said, that church which the world likes the best is sure to be the church God abhors. And I thought to myself, you know, if you're Charles Haddon Spurgeon and your church has, you know, 20,000 people without auditory on a Sunday morning, you can say things like that, right? But when your church is 20 people and you're looking across the street at the church with 5,000, and you say something like that, it kind of feels a little bit like jealousy, like envy, like, like what happens when someone mentions the ministry of another church in town or another church in the denomination, and they happen to be bigger and better. And, you know, because you have to kind of disguise it a little bit, or me, I don't, I don't come out the first thing and say this, but after I say, yeah, great church, but you know, they're just not that theologically savvy. But you know, they've kind of compromised on these issues. But you know, you're not with us. You're not in the in crowd. You're not in the PCA in our denomination. You're not in, in, in the Reformed tradition. You're not in the... And so, therefore, you, you... Well, you know, lots of people might be being converted, but it's, it's very shallow. It's very shallow. And shame on me. Shame on me because it's this competitive quest. It's this competitive quest that drives this envy that we have with, with one another. And it not only, not only looks like envy, the problem, you know the real problem with this competitive quest? Is that it undermines the ministry of the gospel itself. Jesus goes on, in verses 42 through 50, to say some strong words. 
He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's strong words. Verse 50, salt is good, but if it loses its, its loss of saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And in between that, Jesus starts talking about, hey, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus is talking about the colossal cost of sin. Of this sin. Of the sin of selfish ambition and competitive conquest. And he says, look, he, earlier he's going to talk about embracing children. And he says, if you had this sin and you're not able to embrace children, and because of that, they're led into sin and not into the way of the kingdom, well, better it would be for a millstone to be tied around your neck. In other words, what you're doing is actually severely hindering the ministry of the gospel. It's hindering the ministry of the gospel to children and the weak and the least, and it's hindering the ministry of the gospel out in the world. He says, salt is good, but if it's lost its saltiness, verse 50, how will you make it salty again? You are the salt of the earth. But if you're not salty, how is the ministry of the gospel going to go forward? And it's not just that the ministry of the gospel becomes ineffective in the world. It actually becomes ineffective in you. In, verse, in verses 47, in, verses, uh, in these verses, he, he starts talking about something that we don't like to talk about. Hell. And he says, it's better for you to cut off your hand or your foot or your eye. Yes, he's being hyperbolic, but he's being hyperbolic because he's trying to make an impact. The words mean something in context, and they do something in the context, and they're meant to shock you. And it's meant to shock the disciples into wake up and realizing how serious this is. That to follow down this path It is a denial of the gospel and its work in your own life. You're, you're, you're hampering the spirit. And so this, this competitive quest for greatness, it has lots of problems. Severe problems. That's the first thing I think this passage shows us. But Jesus, he wants us to see something else. He wants us to see that there's another way. Which brings us to the second point, and that is the redefinition of greatness. Notice that the whole section starts off in verses 31 and 32 by talking about Jesus predicting again his crucifixion. It says in verse 31, For when he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Jesus says, I am going to the cross. And again, the disciples are utterly baffled. They don't understand. 
Look at verse 32. They did not understand what he is saying. And they don't dare ask him because the last time he told them about this and somebody asked him, somebody said, like, what are you talking about? No way. Remember how Jesus responded? He called him satanic. So it says um, they were all silent. <laughs> they dared not ask. I don't know what he's talking about, but I'm not going to ask him because last time that didn't go so well. You know, Peter's like, I took it last time. John, you take it, you know. They don't get it. You know why they don't get it? Because they have an idea of what greatness is, and they're in the presence of greatness. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the great one. He is the greatest one. And they know what greatness is supposed to mean. It means what the dictionary says it means. It means to be impressive and grand. Greatness is about how many people you have serving you. And how many people are under your authority and you can control and coerce? Greatness is about how many applause you can garner and the allegiance that you can draw. Greatness is about fame and notoriety. Greatness is about wealth and social status. Greatness is about the ability to command the attention of others. Greatness is about mastering a skill. But the cross... Greatness? The cross is not fame or notoriety. You wouldn't even speak of the cross or mention someone's name who went to the cross. It kills notoriety. The, the cross is not wealth and social status. In fact, Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. They had too much social status to be crucified. And wealth? No, you went to the cross poor. You went naked. And, and the greatness is about mastering a skill, but the cross meant you were manhandled and mastered by others. So the disciples, they are utterly baffled. Because what the cross does is it flips our understanding of greatness on its head. And that's what the gospel does. The good news about Jesus Christ turns the world on its head. And all our natural assumptions get flipped. Because the gospel says that the good are out and the bad are in. And the gospel says that the healthy are out and the sick are in. And the gospel says that the rich are out and the poor are in. And the gospel says that the worthy are out and the unworthy are in. And the gospel says that the religious are out and sinners are in. The gospel says that the immoral are out and, the, I mean, the moral are out and the immoral are in. The gospel says that the victorious are defeated and the defeated are victorious. And the gospel says that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus is saying that greatness is defined by not how many people serve you, but how many people you serve. Greatness is defined not by how much fame and accolades people pour on you. It's how much fame and accolade you pour on others. Greatness is defined by one, as one who disregards their own reputation, fame, 
and honor in the sacrificial servants of others. And so here's the question. On that redefinition, if, if you were in the presence of greatness, would you even recognize it? What does it look like? I was um, working. We were in the midst of moving, and while I was moving, I, I was in a place that had a, um, had a TV on. It had, like, the March Madness games, right? NCAA basketball tournament. So, um, so in the midst of this, I saw this advertisement, and it was Dove. Dove has the best advertisements. And this advertisement uh, shows... All these people competing and winning. So it shows this wrestler winning this match. And then the wrestler takes his opponent who has been injured in the match and picks him up and joyfully takes him off the mat and serves him. Uh, And then it shows this marathon runner who gets first and crosses the marathon. And then he goes back to somebody who's almost passing out and he he grabs him and and he takes him forward. And then it shows this basketball team, and this, this, uh, this player makes a last-second dunk, and the player on the other team, on the losing team, is like wallowing in the floor. And he goes and he picks him up, and he's like, pick your head up. You played well. You have nothing to be ashamed of. And then it says, it takes skill to win. It takes care, like dove care to be a winner. If you're wondering why I smell so good this morning, (laughs) I went right out. But the the thing that I, I think it does point out is this. There are these moments that we all look to and we are all attracted to, and they're the moments of greatness. It is the last second shot that's made. It is the victory. It is the running across the line. And what they're trying to point out is actually like there's a greater greatness still, and that is when these folks humble themselves in service of others. And we hardly ever recognize it. We're so focused on the last second shot that we miss what happens after. And so if we're in the presence of greatness, real greatness, Jesus defined greatness, would we recognize it? Well, here are the signs. And that brings us to our last point, the signs of true greatness. Jesus gives several signs throughout this passage. And one is that true greatness, redefined greatness, shows hospitality to the least. In verse 36, Jesus takes a child and he embraces the child. And then in verse 37, he says, Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, to understand this, you have to understand that children in the ancient world were of low social status, of low repute, and they actually did not do anything for you. Uh, you were not considered better the more children you had or anything like that. And so when Jesus takes his child and embraces it, um, you also have to know something else about the ancient world, and that is this. The ancient world did not, they were not on a a modern financial economy like our economy. Uh, People didn't get paid in the ancient world. There were only like two or three types of people that got paid. Did you know that? Soldiers got paid. Day laborers got paid right? Everything else worked according to a benefaction system. 
like where people did favors or graces or caress for one another. And uh, so, you know, somebody owes you a favor, you do a favor. In, in other words, it was like the mafia, and Caesar was at the top, right? That's how the ancient world worked. Hardly any exchange of money. And in that kind of world, what really mattered was, how close can I get to the top by doing favors for people who were more important than me? And then them lifting me up and getting me into a better, uh, into a, a closer to the inner ring, Right? Helping a child, the child was not going to further your social status, okay? The child could do nothing to help you further your social status. The child could not do a favor in return for you. And by the time that they could, they had either forgotten about you or it was too late anyway. And so people did not embrace children. And yet Jesus embraces a child. And the reason he embraces this child is to say, that what greatness looks like is showing attention to those who are regarded as powerless and insignificant and cannot do anything for you. That's what greatness looks like. Uh, every, just about every year, I go to the Society of Biblical Literature meetings. It's basically an academic conference for those who study the Bible. And, uh, and there's various things that happen. Uh, during the day, you go to these Papers, and you hear papers all around. There are lots of papers being given. And then at night, there are all these receptions. And, and I notice something about these receptions. I notice something in me at these receptions, and that is this. At these receptions, uh, you know, everyone, see, in, the, in a guild like this, there's kind of an inner ring. What C.S. Lewis called the inner ring. And these are the really important people. These are the people who have made it. These are the people who are most successful, right? These are the best biblical commentators and things like that. And at these receptions, it's all a game to see how close and how much can I move myself closer to the inner ring. How much can I promote my name? And so what you'll notice is that when you go around and you see people talking to people, um, if you get in a conversation with someone and then they find out that you're like a lowly PhD student from a really bad program, after about two minutes, you'll notice that they're continually looking past you and, and, and kind of turning and keep asking, what was that that you said again? Because they're no longer interested in the conversation because you're not that significant and you can't get them very far. Unless, of course, you were introduced to them by someone else who's important, and then they taught you, but they taught you so that they can get brownie points with the more important person. See how it works? And it's not just like at the Society of Biblical Literature meeting, right? It's at business mixers. It's on the playground after school watching kids. It's even after church. When we look past one another or get in conversations and we think, you're not that significant and you're not going to promote my interest. And Jesus says, that's the opposite of greatness. We do it because we think that greatness is something that's it's not. But Jesus says that actually greatness is the person that's there in the inner ring. And they pay attention to someone and they're truly interested in another and asking questions about another and fully engaged in another, even though that other person is not going to help or promote their reputation, even by becoming their student and doing great work, that then's like, oh, look what my student did. 
Greatness is the one who disregards their reputation and entertains the powerless, the insignificant. Now, some of you, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, right, that's what I do. I engage with the lowly and the significant and the outcast and the marginalized all the time. I had this person over to my house last week. I go and serve this meal here. I do this kind of thing all the time. But here's the thing. If you're saying right now to yourself, look at how I identify with the lowly, and doesn't that show how much, how great I am? Um, That means that you're actually not offering that person hospitality because you're not engaging them for them. You're using them to get brownie points with God and to move further along. In other words, you're like that you're like that mid-level career person who, who is told by the inner ring person at the Society of Biblical Literature meetings, here, listen to my young PhD and what he's doing. And you listen to the young PhD, but you listen so that you can get more brownie points with the person who's in the inner ring and is going to write your recommendation. But that's not hospitality. Because notice that Jesus, he doesn't just... He doesn't just listen to the weak, to the child. Jesus, the triune God, he fully identifies with the weak. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. See, God identifies with the weak. And so... What Jesus is saying is true, true greatness is one who doesn't think about their greatness at all and sees themselves as weak and lowly and engages out of love. That's the first sign of greatness. The second sign of greatness is greatness champions the cause. Uh, remember John, he, he comes up and he says, Jesus, these people, they're casting out demons, but they're, they're not with us. And so I told him to stop. And Jesus is like, Don't tell them to stop. And then he gets them back to basics. He's like, look, we're in a cosmic war here, right? We're talking about angels and demons that we're casting out. Like Mark, he brings us into this context of a cosmic war. It's a battle. And Jesus is like, whoever is not with us is for, or whoever's not against us is for us in this war. We can use all the help we get. In verse 40, he says, For the one who is not against us is for us. Verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. In other words, Jesus is saying, let's get back to basis. What are you in this for? Are you in it for personal fulfillment or so that you can have a better reputation or something like that? What a lot of people think that Christianity is about? A lot of us get into Christianity and we think that Christianity is there to enhance our own prestige, our sense of self-worth. It's our path to personal fulfillment. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. What you need to be concerned about is the bigger cause. Not your own reputation, but the fact that Satan's kingdom is toppled and the kingdom of God is raised up. And if that's what you're concerned about, then it doesn't matter if you did it or somebody else did it. 
It doesn't matter who was used. What matters is that the cause is going forward. I don't know if any of you watched the national championship game, Alabama and Clemson. So it was an amazing game, and there was an amazing story. Alabama at halftime was down 13 to 0. And they were down, uh, they were down because they were just doing horribly at offense. And Jalen Hurst, who was their quarterback, who led them to the championship the year before, has been one of the most successful quarterbacks in Alabama's history. He was having an off night. And in fact, like he had only completed three passes for 21 yards. And so what happened was at halftime, Nick Saban took a gamble and he put in a freshman quarterback who hadn't started a game or played in any intense uh, situations. He puts in this guy, Tula Tagavolia, and Tula Tagavolia leads them to a comeback. And this was like this great story and everybody was talking about it. I mean, it became the center point of the game. But you know, there was a greater story going on, I think, in that game, one that wasn't as seen. And that's this. On the sideline, if you, when they flash over, Jalen Hurst, you saw him there, totally engaged, contributing everything, all of his knowledge, everything he could in rooting on his teammate. This guy who's been benched. And then at the end of the game, he was jumping and celebrating with the rest of Alabama. He wasn't pouting. And apparently it's because he really cared that they won the game. He didn't care about his personal stats. That was not the, the thing that was a priority to him. And as I looked at that, I said, I thought of the words of Jesus and said, that's greatness. That's true greatness. That's what it looks like. Greatness looks like not trying to gain accolades, but to outdo one another in showing honor, the Apostle Paul says. We want to be a church community. We need to be a church community that outdoes other churches in praising other churches and their ministries. Well, what if we did that? What if we talked more about other churches and how great they were and how awesome they were and all that God was doing through them than more than we talked about ourselves? Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be radical? Wouldn't that flip the world on its head? Just as Jesus is doing. Last thing that it looks like, uh, quickly, a sign, last sign of true greatness. It looks like hospitality the least. It looks like championing the cause. But finally, it looks like non-competitive peacemaking. At the beginning, the disciples are arguing in verse 34. In verse 50, Jesus says, be at peace with one another. Jesus is saying, you have to live with peace at one another and do not engage in self-centered political gamesmanship to boost your status over others. Living at peace with other people actually requires sacrifice. That's why Jesus actually starts talking about sacrifice in between. Notice he says, for everyone, verse 49, will be salted with fire. What's that about? Well, that's sacrificial language. You know what you did before you put a sacrifice on the altar before God? You salted it. Everyone will be salted with fire. He's saying, you are a living sacrifice. And then he starts talking about some of the sacrifices that you might have to make. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. This is the sacrifice that you have made. Anything, even good things like hands and feet and eyes that get in the way, but especially your competitive quest. 
And also, you're an honor. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing, your reputation. But sometimes you have to sacrifice those things. You have to sacrifice those things for the cause of the kingdom, to live at peace with others. And you do have to do that to live at peace with others. You actually have to take slights of your own reputation or places where you don't get the credit and you say, you know what? It's okay. It doesn't matter. It's not about me. It's about the kingdom. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. And it's really hard. It's really hard when you think about it. So how do you do it? Well, you remember Jesus. Jesus who offers hospitality to others, who welcomed us when we were weak. Who died for us when we were weak. When we were sinners, when we were ungodly. Remember Jesus who gave up his own personal fulfillment, not my will, for the greater cause, but your will be done. Remember Jesus who did not open his mouth to defend himself. Remember Jesus who knew and trusted that he in the end would be vindicated by God and he was. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He who did not consider equality with God something to be exploited for his own advantage, but humbled himself, emptied himself, becoming obedient, even to death, even to death on a cross, he, God, highly exalted and gave gave him the name above every name. God vindicated him. And... Jesus promises that God will vindicate you too. The first shall be last, and the last, they shall be first. Those who disregard their own honor, and here's the paradox of the gospel, and their reputations and their names for the sake of the kingdom, they will be lifted up, and they will share in the glory of the Son. Remember Jesus. God, I pray that we would and that you would make us a great community whose greatness is defined by the death and resurrection of your beloved Son. Amen.